You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we are grateful in your mercies that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day, knowing, Lord, that we are in desperate need of you and your wisdom, knowing, Lord, that we're in desperate need of you and your grace. And Father, I thank you that you have given us the privilege of worshiping you together. Lord, I know this from my own standpoint. We are in, we are in real need of having our minds and our hearts reoriented toward things that are true, toward things that are eternal, toward things that are genuinely beautiful. And I pray that you'll bless us during these two weeks as we think through the book of Job. Um, let these ancient words, Lord, continue to reach through the centuries, Lord, and speak to us even today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in, y'all. I think there's some room in the end. Well, let's do this. I, I love class sizes like this, actually, because I feel like we can be interactive. And, and, and I, I want you to do that. So um, I, I've got th- some things to say. But if you, if you want to interject or raise a question or if there's something you want to chase... Uh, feel free to do that in here. Um, this, I think this is the kind of setting where we can get away with that. I, I want to spend uh, two weeks. It was initially going to be one week, and now it's been extended to two weeks on the book of Job. Um, let's, let's think about that a little bit. I'm, I'm always a bit fearful of doing the book of Job. It almost seems like there's a little bit of an attachment, almost something mysterious about doing the book of Job where... Um, this, this sounds a little too voodoo-ish, but you, you invite things into your life when you, when you get into Job. So I, I enter into this advisedly. Um, but I, I have, I've been thinking a lot about Job with some students at Beeson. So this is coming out of, out of a context of my teaching life this past semester. Uh, it was a whole semester given to the, to the category of biblical theology, which is a, a kind of fancy way of talking about the way in which the Bible, the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, relate to one another. Um, so what does it mean that our Old Testament and our New Testament are two discrete corpi of our Bible, and yet they form a single canonical witness? In other words, the Old Testament and the New Testament um, are different from one another, and yet in their difference, they center around the same subject matter. I, I, I tell this to my students at Beeson regularly. One of the most fascinating phenomenon from the history of the church is that the, the apostles, Jesus himself, the early church, received the Old Testament in the form in which it was given to Israel. They didn't tamper with it. In other words, they didn't see the necessity to, if I can use these terms loosely, to Christianize it. So, for example, it's not uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire in Daniel, right? And there's a fourth person that appears in the fire... There's no text where early Christians tampered with that and put some commas and said, and that was Jesus Christ, by the way. Or Isaiah 53, Behold my servant, which we'll read on Good Friday again this coming year. Um, There's no text of Isaiah 53 that says, Behold my servant, comma, Jesus Christ, comma, to to, to insert it so that it can clarify for you that this is something that's Christian. The, The early church did not do that. They received the Old Testament in the literary form in which it was given to them. And in that form, it was speaking to them of who Jesus is in the Father by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's a remarkable thing. 
And you see this, I think, throughout, all, throughout the Scriptures, especially in, in the New Testament. You see Jesus Himself stopping with His disciples to explain the significance of His person and work on the basis of what the Old Testament said. So Jesus models that for us. So my, my class this semester was all, we wrestled with this for a semester. And the last part of the semester, we, we spent some time thinking about Job, um, because uh, what does Job, as a, as a really a strange book in the Old Testament, it's odd, um, what does Job do in the life of the church to shape our understanding of what it means to be a Christian? That's, that's the question I want to wrestle with you over the next, uh, today and next week. What, how does Job shape and pressure our understanding of what it means to be a true Christian witness? Um, so let me, can I give some aerial view things on the book of Job before we dive in? And this is, this is the art, this is the shape of the class as I conceive of it. So today, I, I'm really going to spend all of our time in the first two chapters. And I think these are the first two chapters that we know the most about the book of Job. I mean, if, if someone asks you about the story of Job, we tend to know what I consider to be heroic Job in the first two chapters. And then, maybe unwisely, next week, we're going to do the whole rest of the book, which is about it's 38 more chapters or something like that. So we'll, it'll, it'll brace yourself for next week. Um, but I want to do the first two chapters today, but before we get into it, I want to think about some aerial view issues about reading the book of Job together. My, my son Jackson last night got together with some of his buddies from school, and they, they <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it, but they, they watched the Mike Tyson fight. Um, did you hear about this? Mike Tyson is a 50-year-old, went at it again, and, and apparent, I didn't see it, but apparently it was amazing. Um, and you know, the, you know the famous line from Mike Tyson back in the 90s, where Tyson said, everyone's got a plan. Until you get punched in the mouth, right? So everyone goes into the ring with a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And I think Job testifies to that. In other words, we, we grow a cut. This is why I appreciate this book. We grow a custom. And there's some beauty to this, by the way. But I think we grow a custom as people to a certain mode of being. We habituate ourselves to certain patterns. And by the way, I think those patterns, at least I'm hardwired this way, those patterns sustain a certain level of sanity for you and for me. Um, a schedule is a great gift for us to have. Um, I, I read a few years ago Stanley Harawas's memoir. Uh, he's an ethicist, Christian ethicist from Duke uh, Divinity School. He wrote a memoir called Hannah's Child. And, and, and uh, Hauerwas was in a long marriage with a woman that struggled deeply with, with mental health issues. And, and their internal, and he's, he's very candid about this in the book, but internally their family structure was, was a bit of, was a mess. And, and they had a son. And there was a line in there, I'll never forget it, where, where Hauerwas said, our schedule provided for us the stability of our family. I mean, the fact that we knew there was a lot that could go off the rails, but it's our schedule. It's the, it's the fact that we knew what we were going to do on Monday morning from 7.30 in the morning to 5. That provided for us some stability as we moved forward. I think that's Mike Tyson's, everyone's got a plan. Um, and those are good things. I, I feel that as a father. I'm trying to help, especially one child in particular, think through what it means to schedule and to think about what's coming up around the corner. Because this, these are big life lessons when it comes to being prepared for what, what life is bringing to us. Job was a man, by all accounts, who seemed to be prepared. 
He was a man that operated according to a mode of being that was, and I say this not pejoratively, that we can tell was predictable. He was a man of means, a man who had children, who had a wife, and he was quite successful and quite impressive. My sense is Job, the way in which the narrative of the Bible presents him, Job was the kind of man that would walk into a room and you'd know he was there. there was, there's a gravity about this man. And a gra- at least from the narrative itself, there's a gravity about this man that got the attention of Satan and God himself. So that, that, that's, he's that kind of man. So Job had a plan. Right, We have plans. We operate according to a certain mode of being, a certain structure. We are planning for the future. And then you get punched in the mouth. Right, And now the plan goes off the rails. That's I want you to keep that in the air somewhere because we'll turn back to that theme again. Secondly, and this is all, this is all throat clearing here. Secondly, um, is, 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 I want you to have a sense of the narrative dynamics of what it means to read biblical stories. You know, biblical stories like Job, and it's a narrative. So much of the Bible, have you thought about this? So much of the Bible comes to us in narrative form, in storied form. Um, and, and that might be hard for some of you, especially for some of you who are um, logic numbers kind of people. You know what I mean? In other words, like you, you, you want a premise that's followed by a minor premise, and then you get a logical conclusion, and you, you want to be able to follow an argument in such a way that two plus two equals four. Um, and there is that stuff in the Bible. Right? We've got a lot of that stuff. Paul is on his best days like that, right? Um, where you're working through Paul, and you can tell that Paul's crafting an argument. And he's crafting it in a rhetorical way that's going to a particular theological point. Romans 12.1 Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I, I, I beseech you, because of everything that I've just argued about the significance of the Gospel, therefore, I'm going to tell you, present your whole body to Jesus as a living sacrifice. So that's, that's a kind of law. And I'll be honest, that appeals to me. I like that. I like getting into some of these things. But so much of the Bible does not come to you that way. It doesn't come to you as a manual for Christian living. What, what does one do uh, when suffering comes? We'll turn to pages 385 to 473 and read the manual for Christian... The Bible comes to us in storied form. Um, again, in this class, and I'm sorry, this is fresh in my mind. Um, this class, we, we read... Um, some of the writings of a, of a German theologian that taught at Yale in the, uh, about 30, 40, 50 years ago named Hans Frey. Hans Frey is well known for what's called a narrative approach to theology. And what he means by that is our coming to terms with who Jesus Christ is demands that we pay attention to the details of the story itself. So that, so that, and you think about this, this is a bit frustrating. But Jesus and, and the Bible's delivery to us of the person of Jesus comes primarily in the form of the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's in storied form. So that we follow the story itself and the story and what Jesus says and does on this grand redemptive stage is telling us something about Jesus' own self-identity and who Jesus conceived of himself to be. 
Um, there, and there are lots of different approaches out there to coming to terms with who Jesus is, for example. You, know, you can reconstruct the world of, the, of Second Temple Judaism, or you can think through what it meant to be a zealot in the first century world, or what it meant to be a sage in the first century world, and begin to bring some of those dynamics and, and sort of push them onto Jesus. A lot of that can be very illuminating. But Hans Frey was someone that believed in the sufficiency of the Bible. And what does Frey say? Frey says, if you want to know what Jesus thought about himself and his own mission, then follow the story and listen to what he says. And just so I don't bury the lead here, you know what Frey's conclusion is? Jesus' self-identity and his understanding of his identity is that he must be. He's the living God. And because he's the living God, the way in which the story unfolds, the resurrection is not so much as a surprise as a necessary fact of his own narrative identity. He has to be. He is life. So, and, and you can go back to, you know, Genesis and Exodus and Numbers, and you can go through King Samuel and Kings. So much of the Bible is given to us in storied form. So that requires us to be sensitive, I think, to narrative and storied dynamics. And, here, and I'll just keep this very simple. Here's a sort of three-level understanding of how biblical stories come to us. They come to us, number one, in the world of the story itself. There are three worlds. So with Job, we're talking here about the world of Job, eking as he does from the world of us, which is somewhere in the east. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's the world of Job, right? And Job and his, eventually his three friends, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, who appear on the scene. And we follow Job and the narrative, and it's a grueling narrative, the narrative of his own story in the first two chapters and his wrestling with God in the bulk of the book in the middle of Job. So we follow Job with that So that, That's that. Then you have the story of the, 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 the world of the narrator, the one who's writing this. That's not to be collapsed onto Job. We, we, and by the way, we really don't know who wrote Job. This is one of the fun things about the Old Testament. I don't know who wrote Job. Um, lots of speculation about who wrote Job. Some would argue maybe Solomon as a part of his wisdom exercise. Others will argue that it's actually post-exilic, written by someone like Ezra in the scribal school. I mean, there, there are lots of social reconstructions that people can offer to you and to me about who wrote Job and why it came to be. But I'm just going to let you in on a secret. Job, as a book, is very uninterested in letting you know who wrote Job. Just uninterested in that. That's not the kind of question that this book here wants you to press onto it. Which goes in the face of so many, again, of our instincts when it comes to reading. We're hardwired in such a way that when you read an author, you want to know something about the author, you want to know something about the psychology of the author, the training of the author, what's the worldview or the political view that the author's kind of pushing in through this story that I might be conscious or unconscious of as I read. All kinds of things that you want to know about when you read. And Job is telling us here in the Bible, at least if I'm reading it on the surface level, I'm not interested in providing you any of that data. So there's the world of the book, and there's the world of the one actually writing it, and there's a big mystery there, I think, for us as we read it. And then the third world is the world of us as the reader. And we get a view as a reader, sharing this view with the narrator, that we have a, and I'll use this term loosely, but we have an omniscience. We, we, we have a, that's not the right, we have a knowledge bank, an understanding of the story, that goes way beyond Job's understanding of the story. That's crucial. 
Because we're reading this with a... And think about this. We're reading this with the kind of data that Job apparently went to his grave never knowing. He didn't know it. Never in this... So you know how the story unfolds in the first few chapters, right? Here, um, the Lord is in His heavenly tribunal, the divine council... Um, so that you think about the principalities and the powers of the world being still subservient to Israel's God coming to give an account to Him. And out of this court comes the accuser, the Satan, another mysterious figure. And here comes the accusing figure in the very court of God. And all of a sudden, we've got a divine cosmic jousting match between God Himself and this accusing figure. Because the accusing figure wants God to know that not all of these righteous people in the world are righteous because of Him. It's just because of what God gives to them. And there are very troubling, and I'm, and I'm not going to let any of us off the hook on this, and I'll just let some of it sit, but there are very troubling features of Job chapter 1. One of the most troubling features is that the Satan figure here, Satan, does not bring up Job's name. Have you ever noticed that detail? God brings up Job's name. Have you considered my servant Job? Let me read you these first few verses so you hear it. I've got the ESV this morning. Job chapter 1. There was a man from the land of Uz. (laughs) Where's that, right? Nowheresville on the east side of the Transjordanian mountains. Possibly the Edomites. This is another one of those fascinating features of this book here. Job enters into this very special category in the Old Testament of righteous figures outside of the covenant of it with Israel. Um, can you think of some other figures like this? Melchizedek? Who in the world was Melchizedek? Don't know. Mysterious figure, this prince king of Salem. Uh, you have Enoch, right? And and he was not. It's a man outside the covenant who walked so closely with God, and he was not. I, I joke with my students at Beeson that I have two colleagues that I wouldn't be surprised if I heard, and they were not. You'll appreciate this, Carolyn. Frank Frank Thielman and Robert Smith. If if I come to school on Monday and they're like Robert Smith is just gone. I'll be like, man, I kind of get it, right? These people who walk very closely with the Lord. Um, Job fits in that category. And there are all kinds of questions that, again, if you're a critical reader, and I imagine most of you are, if you're a critical reader, it raises questions that are really unanswerable. Like, how did Job come to know Israel's God? How, How did Job even know what a righteous life looked like? In other words, he didn't have Torah. That's the point I'm trying to make. He was not a recipient of Torah. He was someone outside of the reach of Torah, and yet still a righteous and pious man. And there's all kinds of questions about how did that happen? What situation gave rise to that? How did he know who Israel's God was? How did he even have the categories to to show the kind of fidelity that he showed in his life? Lots of great questions that we have no answer to. Job emerges as this concrete figure outside of the world of Israel, who walks with God, and this is crucial, and is modeling for Israel and for the church what it means to be faithful in holding on to the promises of God and God's very being. So this is what Job is. He comes from the land of us. He's blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He turned away from evil. You have all of this that 
all of his possessions that he had here. And then verse 6 is the big moment, right? Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to the Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And here's that troubling verse. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and does and turns away from evil. And now the chess mat, the gambit, <laughs> has begun. Pieces are beginning to move. Um, and how does the Satan respond? Well, he's only righteous and blameless because of his 401k. I mean, haven't you seen it? The guy can't miss. I mean, he's, his children are, you know, it's, it's like, what's that great Garrison Keeler line where, you know, the, the children are all wonderful and mature and the women are the best in the world. I mean, it's a, I mean he's, he's, he's living the dream. So, of course, he's, uh, he's upright and blameless. Look at the ways in which you've blessed him. But if you touch his possessions and his family, then we'll see if he's really an upright and blameless man. So we'll talk more about those dynamics in a bit, but I want to step back. To circle on back onto that, that what I think is a very crucial feature of, of understanding this book. Job is never privy to this conversation. We don't get to the end of that middle section where Job is waging war against his friends and against heaven himself, declaring his innocence, crying out for his day in court before God, and Job gets what he asks for. He gets his day in court. Let me have my day in court so that I can plead my case before the divine tribunal because I will win that case. Give me my, my day in court. He gets his day in court and Job says not a word. We'll talk more about that next week. All right. So there's a lot that's going on here, but one of the things, and again, notice what's not said. And I, and I realize this is an argument by silence, but I think it's one that works. Notice what's not said when we get to God's response later in the book of Job. Job, listen. The Satan came in, and he and, and he affronted my own honor as the God of the universe. And I pointed you out as someone who was righteous and blameless. And I gave him free reign on you and your family. I just told him that he couldn't kill you. That story is never told to Job. I should say this is a, not that it would have helped. And I, was, I don't I don't think that okay. Then that, that all makes sense now. I don't think any of that would have helped Job. But the point is, we have, we have access to dynamics in this narrative to a fuller view of reality than Job ever had. And I, I want to, I want just, just a few thoughts on that with you. Th- think about the implications of just that simple narrative dynamic when it comes to the warp and woof of your own life and the life of your family and the life of the world and the people that you love. There are dynamics going on of which we are not aware. Think about that famous line in Hamlet. There, there's more that are going on than just in, in the stars than you know, Horatio, right? There's more that's going on than we have before us within our understanding of reality as we see, as we see it and as we experience it. Um, and how does one communicate this well to young people? I think about this. Because we tend to live in the, in the sort of visceral, existential angst of our moment. 
And we see it. And, and how can we not? In other words, I'm, there's nothing punitive here. We can't transcend it. We can't transcend our experience of whatever phenomenon it is that we're having. Whether it's, and think about this, whether it's the joyful moments, the ecstatic moments, or whether it's the moments of suffering, we can't transcend our experience of, of it. And that's important. That's something to be valued. It's something to be listened to. It's something to hear. The Lament Psalms, the whole book of Job, I think is canonical warrant for people to be able to pray and to speak in risky ways about God and His people and the church in light of their experience, namely, what I believe is coming into direct conflict with what I am experiencing. And I'm going to have to talk about that. And I'm going to have to pray about that. And I'm going to have to live into the frustration of that. So I think the Bible creates all kinds of remarkable pastoral space for people to, ex- to express the frustrations of their experience. But I think Job, here is a book, tells you and me something. That even though we can't transcend the phenomena of our moment, whatever it is, the joy or the sorrow, there is much, much more going on than we can even know. There's more going on in the heavens There's more going on in the world of principalities and powers. There's more that's going on behind the scenes. There's more purpose involved than we know. There's so much more going on that we, and and here's the hard part, that in this world, we most likely will never put together. We'll never put the final piece of the jigsaw to say, "Now, now I see the beautiful tapestry of my life coming together. I mean, I know we want to live into that. And sometimes we do get to see that. But oftentimes we don't. There's more going on than we know. Novels, by the way. Fiction is a great way of seeing these dynamics worked out. Now, I just, I just finished a novel last week uh, by Christopher Biha um, called An Index of Self-Destructive Acts. It's, I think it's just a fantastic novel. Um, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an actual baseball term. Uh, that comes from Bill James' uh, work on sabermetrics. Um, and, and he has all these categories, you know, war and field, fielding, independent pitching, all, the, all this new analytic stuff in baseball. Bill James is the kind of uh, figurehead behind it. And he introduced um, what he called a, a statistic called the index of self-destructive acts. That's when a pitcher just falls apart and you have no real, no real analysis for why it happened. It just fell apart. So this novel is that. I mean, it's an index set in 2008, 2009, New York City, right around the fall of the the economy. It's fascinating. And what am I getting as a reader? I'm getting all these different perspectives from these characters that are engaged in really significant human moments. And as a reader, I'm seeing things from their own story and their own experiencing of it that they as individual characters can never know. They just can't know it because they're locked in their body. And their experience of it. Well, so what's what can I? And there's so much more to say about this. But what's the cash value of this? I think the cash value of that is a is a, is a humility in the face of our own experiences. And that humility works itself out, I think, twofold. Number one, I think it's a humility that says, number one, I don't know that all that's going on, and I leave it in the hands of God, which is scary. There can be a chest-beating part of this. I get that, what I call Braveheart Christianity. But there's also a legitimate fear 
a human fear and anxiety that comes from the standpoint of saying, I will leave this in God's good hands, even though I have no idea what's really going on on the, on, on the ultimate side of this reality. And number two, I think it's a cause for humility for you and for me to provide full narrative explanations of the causes that lead to people's joy or their suffering. There's a humility in front of that. Because there's, this is where Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz are going to get into a lot of trouble in the next few chapters. Because they're providing for Job a grand narrative of what's going, why this is going on in his life. This is why, Job, can't you see it? And Job is insistent, and by the way, he's right, that, that that's not why this is going on in my life. It's not because of the categories that you're presenting. There's more here. So I think this narrative perspective within Job, to my mind, is, is, to, is, is a significant feature of the book. There's more going on than we ever know, and the book of Job is going to force us, and I would say tyrannically force us, to wrestle with that dynamic as we move through the book and see the way in which, in which it unfolds in, in ways that are encouraging and in ways that are a little frightening as well. Um, can I say one more introductory thing? What time is it? We're in trouble. Don't worry. Don't worry. I can, I can do a lot in, in uh, 10 seconds. Um, Job's suffering is extreme. It's extreme. And I think because of that, that can cause some of us, and I think there's a feature of, of proper humility here. I, maybe that's not the right term. But it can cause us some pause to think that Job really has anything to do with us. In other words, many of us have known suffering. If you live in the experiment of human nature, you will know suffering. You're going to know loss. You're going to know frustration. You're going to know discouragement. Um, foiled dreams. Going to the cemetery at the wrong time. You're going to know these experiences in your life. Job's experience is a holocaust. All of his children gone in one day. Um, all of his possessions, which was significant, which came as well with his public reputation. This was an honor-shame culture in the ancient Near Eastern world. He is now no longer in the place of honor. He's now in the place of public shame. He's lost everything. And then his body gets attacked with boils. And he's got a wife that has a very understandable perspective. Let's just get this thing over with. Curse God and die, right? So Job's experience is extreme. Bavar Childs, in his, comment, in his comments on the book of Job, says the extremity of Job's suffering is there in part to function as a catch net for all of human suffering. In other words, the point of it being extreme, the way in which it is, or at least a point of it being extreme in the book of Job, is so that it can catch all kinds of suffering, whether whether it's whether it is on the extreme Holocaust level, or whether it's on the level that's a little bit more everyday life. So, so my, my simple point with that is the everyday life of struggle and suffering does find a touchstone here in the Book of Job, even though you might feel like I don't identify with that. I mean that that's overwhelming, but the overwhelming part is meant, I think, to catch all kinds of more what we might consider to be picky unish aspects of human life. 
So the, 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 the theology of suffering here, the theology of God's being, the theology of hope that you find here in the book of Job is a theology that will meet humanity in any kind of its suffering. Because we know this, don't we? That's a very subjective thing. The way in which people enter into their suffering, the way in which they enter into their pain, that's a, that's a subjective thing. And one would cause pause, I think, um, to, to project on others, right, your own suffering, or, or, or lack of suffering. I think this is the way in which some of us might be who are a little bit more, I don't know, maybe British in temperament. Um, it's, it's not that bad, right? Stiff upper lip here, right? The stiff upper lip approach to Christianity. The, the point is, people's experiences are their experiences. It is what it is. And the book of Job it has the ability, whatever that experience is, to speak right into it. And to force one in those experiences to wrestle with what God has them to wrestle with in this moment. John Piper, some of you may know that name, wrote, wrote a, got, got cancer um, several, maybe a decade ago, and wrote a book that I thought had a, a really kind of bold, gutsy title. The, the title of the book was "Don't Waste Your Cancer." Right. And it's and it's and it's and he's fine now, right? He's, he's he had prostate cancer. Um, and I guess the old joke is that there are two kinds of men in this world, men that have prostate cancer and the men that will. Um, you know, so, I, 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 so it's, it, that, we would look at that, well, I, I, okay, but the point is, that was his moment. And his moment was a moment for him and his suffering and his story to wrestle with the things that the book of Job is causing us to wrestle with. And what is it that Job is really wrestling with? And this is, this is what I'll plant the seed and then, and then we'll, we'll depart. What Job is really wrestling with in this book, especially in the first two chapters, but more so as we move on, is that he didn't recognize God anymore. That is, and I'll show you some verses with this next week. That's at the core. The, the, what His losses were huge. But the very searing center of his existential crisis that he has, especially beginning in chapter 3, is I don't recognize God anymore. He's not operating according to the same pattern that I've, that I've grown accustomed to. Because the pattern that I've grown accustomed to is I live a righteous and a pious life. I fear God. I worship God. And God responds in such a way that's in accord with that. And now I don't recognize him anymore. He's not operating according to the same script. In other words, Job is coming into fierce contact with the freedom of God. God is free. God is, or the terms that we might toss around a lot within reformational worlds, God is sovereign. He's not constrained by forces outside of himself to do anything that we expect him to do or anticipate that he will do. He is free. And C.S. Lewis's term, he's not domesticated. And there is a fearful part of that. There's a part of that reality that is fearful. Stroking the mane of Aslan is a kind of scary thing. It's still a lion. And Job is coming into contact with God with that. And he responds in the first two chapters admirably and beautifully. The Lord gives. This is the freedom of God. The Lord takes away, He's still free. Blessed be His name. I came from the womb naked, I'll return to the grave naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Bible says in all of this, Job did not sin, because Job recognized that God was free. And in His freedom, God can give and God can take away. 
And this is the very, and I'm going to plant this and then we're done. This is the hard part of Job 1 and 2 when it comes to the freedom of God. None of the good gifts that God gives us in this world are ever ours by possession. None of them. And, and this is hard, and they don't have to be. When you think about the prayer that we, you just, I'm going to the 11 o'clock, but the prayer that you prayed together today, I assume, we bless thee for creation, preservation, all the blessings of this life. We bless God for the good things that he gives us. We expect there to be a way in which our lives unfold. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. We expect a normal mode of being. But none of that is ours by right, and none of that is necessary in the freedom of God. He can give and He can take away. And that's what makes the next line of the prayer that we prayed together so crucial. But above all, for thine inestimable love. So can, 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 this is hard. This, I, this is steak and potato stuff. But, but here's the simple gospel truth that I think comes out of these first few chapters of Job. God has given us His Son. He's given us the world in His Son. He's given us the... We heard Cameron Cole several weeks ago in his political sermon saying that one of his mentors said, if you figure out where you're going to spend eternity, that's the base question of everything. Well, we figure that out. God in His kindness has given us His Son. That's immovable. Can't be plucked out. That, that's the kind of language that the Gospels and Paul use. It, it can't be removed. Heights, depths, angels, principalities, nothing can pluck you out of, of the hand, the saving hand of the almighty, fearful God. You are safe in Jesus. He's given to you to that, and you are secure in that. But he, and this is the heart, but he doesn't promise you a good marriage. And he doesn't promise you children that turn out the way in which you hope they turn out. And he doesn't promise you that you're, 401k is going to continue to grow. And he doesn't, in other words, he doesn't promise all of that. Those are his gifts to be enjoyed and to give him thanks for, to draw us into the, into thanksgiving to him. But none of those are required. God is free. And the question that Job is presenting before all of us is, what happens when one part of our house of cards begins to come undone? Because I imagine for all of us in one way or another, it will come undone. On some level. Some frustration, some deep disappointment, some dream that's not fulfilled, whether it's relationally or business or in life. Some dream that doesn't become fulfilled. How do we relate to God in the face of that? That's the question that we'll struggle with uh, next week as well. Lord Jesus, bless my friends as they leave. Um, You test us. And that's a hard thing to swallow. And Lord, you test us in such a way at times to let us know that this world is not everything. And this world is not our final resting place. We're living for the heavenly city. And so Lord, I pray that you'll help us to live in the, in the joyful anticipation that we have you, even when you might appear to us as an adversary. You have given us your Son, You've given us Jesus. That's the security in which everything rests. All of our dreams, all of our hopes, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. 
And I need this in the season of Advent, O Lord, as I'm sure my friends do here as well. Please reorient us to that truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.